Hello and welcome to the LifeGate Free Will Baptist podcast. We are so glad you could join us today. Our aim is to connect with others and share the good news of the gospel, that God loves us, that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, and that anyone can have eternal life through trusting in him alone. The main passage used today is from Mark chapter 2. Now, let's join Pastor Jason for a sermon on Four Aspects of Faith. talk to you this morning on the subject of uh, the faithful four number four the faithful four and we're going to look at uh, a story this morning probably a familiar story um, I look back at my records I try to take records whenever I preach a sermon when I preached it where I preached it that that kind of thing so y'all don't get the same sermon every year that sort of stuff uh, this one was preached back in I don't know several years ago so you probably wouldn't remember it but it wasn't this exact sermon just the passage uh, so this sermon has never been preached here but the passage I was in uh, the last time I was in this passage in Mark chapter, two, I mean, yeah, Mark chapter 2 was uh, several years ago. And so I don't know if you remember that uh, or not. But anyway, it'll be familiar to you from doing your Bible reading and that sort of thing. So if you want to turn your Bible this morning to Mark chapter 2. And I want to talk to you this morning about the faithful four. Some of you already know we're uh, familiar with this story. As soon as I talk about it, you'll kind of know who it is and what we're talking about. But I want to talk to us this morning about the faithful four. As you think about the new year coming in, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions, and that's good, um, as long as we keep them, amen? But most of us are like, I don't know, let me, I, I like studying, especially when I was younger, studying animals and how animals worked and, you know, the different, uh, you know, animals on the earth and things God has put here. And I think of the, uh, you guys know what the fastest land animal is? Okay, everybody probably knows that, it's cheetah. And um, you, know, you can go down here to the Washington Zoo and see one, and not really not that far away. But... Um, that uh, the cheetah is the fastest land animal, uh, mammal anyway, and uh, he can run about 70 miles an hour. But the thing about the cheetah is that he was one of my favorite animals as a kid because, you know, they're the fastest. You know, you want to be fast. Kids want to be fast. And so one of the things about the cheetah is when he takes off after his next meal and he's trying to run down whatever it is that he's trying to catch, he can only maintain that he can go 0 to 70 in I don't know how many seconds, pretty quick. But he cannot maintain that speed for very long at all. In fact, he can only stay going 70 miles an hour for just, just a little while, less than a minute. He's, just not, he's not going to be able to maintain that speed. And just the way he's designed, he's really fast, but he cannot be fast for very long. And I've heard, read different things, whether his heart's too small or whether he doesn't get enough air or he overheats or whatever the problem is. He can't maintain that speed. We're oftentimes like a cheetah. We come out of the gate of the new year just gung-ho to do whatever we need to do and I know what I need to do I've thought over it you know we had some time off between Christmas and New Year I thought over the things I need to change for next year and this is what I'm going to do differently next year this is the goals I have and we come out of the gate running fast and if you're anything like me I'm a good starter but I'm not a good finisher you know I've found most people are good starters and most people are not good finishers too so I don't feel quite so bad and it's not not that I'm justifying it at all but it's just the way it happens it's the way we are in life. And I was looking at another animal in, where all these animals are in southern Africa. And I looked at another animal called the wild dog. Is anybody, I mean anybody's animal, the favorite animal, wild dog? Anybody? You know anybody that has even remotely said that? I don't either. But as I was studying this animal, this animal is, you know, about half the size. A cheetah can be anywhere from like 110 to 150, 160 pounds, something like that. Uh, a wild dog is probably 40 pounds. I mean, he's like half the weight. 
And uh, this wild dog, is if you've seen one, they're just ugly. I was going to show one on the screen today, but we're having difficulty with the, with the Internet, so I didn't. <clears throat> but they're just ugly. I mean, some people may think they're cute. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just all different colors, and they're just like somebody had a bunch of leftover parts and put them together, and they got a big fluff on the end of their tail, and they're, they're, they're weird colored, and they're skinny, and they're bony. And anyway, they can only run about 44 miles an hour, top speed for about half as, half as fast as the cheetah. But they can not only run twice as long, they can run nonstop for a long distance. They can take off after their prey, and they can their success rate is a whole lot higher than the cheetahs or any of the other big cats in the in African uh, continent because the, they have endurance on their side. They have huge lungs compared to their body, and they can run and run and run and run and run for miles. Their average rundown of, a, of their prey or their dinner or whatever is uh, at least three miles. They can run much longer than that, much further than that, but they literally run their prey till they're exhausted and they just kind of give up on life, literally. And so this is how they operate, and they, they hunt together, and they have a much bigger success rate than any of the other cats, lions, uh, leopards, any of them. The wild dog has a much higher success rate in, uh, in fulfilling a hunt than these other animals do. We, my friends, you and I need to be, don't look like one or act like one necessarily, but we need to have the endurance of one in the Christian faith. And I want to speak about four aspects of faith this morning and as we get into the message this morning. Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be at today. But I want us to be, the, the Christian life is not a sprint like a cheetah would run. It's not a 100-yard dash. It is a marathon. And a marathon, it takes uh, concentration, it takes pace, it takes endurance, it takes stamina, it takes us having the long look, if you will. Not just what's going to go on today, not, going, not even what's going on in my right, life right now, but what I want to be in a year from now, where I want to be at the end of this year, where my long-term goal is, where my family should be five years from now, whatever it should be, I should set myself up to go that direction now, pace myself, that I can meet that goal in my Christian life. And I want us to look at the four aspects of faith this morning. There are many other aspects of faith, faith, but I want us to look at this morning the faithful four, if you will. Mark chapter 2, Jesus has, has done some miracles before this, and he's cleansed the leper right before this, and he's extremely popular right now. In fact, so much he tells the leopard, the leopard, leper, uh, not the cat, the guy that had disease, uh, after he healed him, he said, "Don't go to the." She said, "Go to the priest and do everything you're supposed to do in Old Testament law. Don't tell anybody that I healed you." And of course, he did the very opposite, and, and Jesus couldn't even go in the city anymore because he was so popular. He stayed out in the desert. But this is where the story picks up. Verse number one, it says, "And again, he entered into uh, Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that Jesus was in the house or in a house, and straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them." No, not so much as about the door. <clears throat> he preached, and he preached the word unto them. I kind of think in my mind as I think about this, some of you have seen pictures or, uh, you know, back in some of the, the great revivals of our day in, in history that you can look back and I think of an old country church somewhere and all the windows are open. And the pastor's up there doing a revival. Whoever's doing the revival's up there, evangelist speaking, and the church is full, and people are standing outside in the parking lot so much that they started to, to fold around the buildings and kind of listen through the window. They were just listening for the, the preaching. This is what Jesus was doing here. He was preaching in the house. The house was full. The outside was full. The windows were full. Everything was full. And Jesus was preaching the word of God unto them. And they came unto him, verse 3, bringing one sick of the palsy, 
that is that was born of four. Now this same story is told in Matthew chapter nine and in Luke chapter five. And as you see the parallels of the story is four men carrying this guy, and in the book of Luke tells us that. And as they come to this house where Jesus was, the place was crowded, it was overrun with people, there's no way to get in. Verse number four, and when they would come nigh unto him, for they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. This paralyzed guy was laying in this bed, and they let him down. And when Jesus saw their faith, I want you to see those three words there, saw their faith. We're going to come back to those in just a little bit. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. By the way, these are the best words that anybody can ever hear. We're going to get to this by the end of the sermon, but the most important need in this man's life was not that he walked. The most important need in this man's life was his sins were forgiven him. And he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why, he said, Why does this man thus speak blasphemous things or blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God only? By the way, they were right. They were taught back in the Old Testament that only God can forgive sin. And they were, the Pharisees and Sadducees had a lot of things wrong, had a lot of stuff wrong, theology-wise and practice-wise. But they had this one right. There is nobody in your life that can forgive sin except God. The priest can't do it. A counselor can't do it. A denomination can't do it. Your favorite pastor on TV can't do it. Uh, you know, some revival meeting uh, evangelist can't do it. Nobody in your life, no friend can say, that. well, you've done enough good stuff where, you know, it's not going to really matter if you go uh, stand before God. He's not going to count it against you. It's not that way. The only person that can forgive your sin is the only person you've sinned against, and that person is God, and God is the only one that can forgive your sin, my sin. Now, we must forgive each other and that kind of thing as well, but the person that you've sinned against is God. And the person we must get things right with is God. And immediately when Jesus had perceived in his spirit that they had reasoned these things in themselves, he said unto them, Why do you reason these things in your hearts? The only person that can read your mind is Jesus. And it, was, it would be scary being around Jesus, right? Because he knows what you're thinking. And that's what he did here. He knew what they were thinking. And God knows your heart, and Jesus knows where you are right now, and he knows what you're thinking. And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit, and he said, Why do you reason these things in your heart? Verse number 9, Whether it's easier to say, or is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Your sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, we'll get into this by the end of the service, but the, the more important thing was, the harder thing would to be do was to forgive somebody's sin. Some physician may be able to do something to this man and make him walk. Somebody in, in some Mayo Clinic somewhere may be able to give him some kind of medicine that would make him feel normal again and make him be able to move more than he could before. And some kind of physical therapy may help him do a little bit far as physically. But the harder thing would do, the impossible thing to do for this man is to forgive his sin because nobody can do that except God. And he says to these people, which one is harder to do to say? Which one is harder to say? Your sins be forgiven you or to rise up and walk. And as they were weighing this in their mind, they're trying to balance this out. And if one was, Jesus could make one true, he could make the other true. And he does make the other true, makes both of them true. And he says to the sick of the palsy, verse number 10, but that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. In essence, he was saying to those scribes and those Pharisees that they said that only God can forgive sin. They had that right. So if Jesus forgives sin, he would be 
God. He's making emphatic, an emphatic claim that he is God if he forgives this man's sin. And he says unto the sick of the palsy, verse number 11, I say unto thee, rise, take up thy bed, and go to thy house. And immediately he arose and took up his bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen it in this fashion. In the book of Luke, it tells us the same story. He said, we have seen strange things today. Man, they sure have, haven't they? And they all feared God, and they reverenced God. In the book of Luke, it said they all feared God, and they all glorified God in that place. Now, pre-adventure, some of the, this is early in Jesus' ministry, some of the Sadducees, some of the Pharisees, some of the religious people were actually, you know, legitimately looking into Jesus to see if he was real or not. I believe some there were coming to see if he was real and to actually believe on him. Not all of them obviously didn't. And most of them may, be, may not have. We're not sure. But God did this miracle to see and to show and to let everybody know that he was God. But I want you to see this morning an aspect of this uh, passage we read this morning about the faithful four. The faith of these four men to get the person that they need to get to Jesus there to get his healing taking place. And I want you to see four aspects of that faith really quickly. First of all, their faith involved compassion for the man's need. They had, these four men were not told a whole lot about their background or, or whether what their occupation was or what their relationship was to the man that was healed. But we do know that apparently at least they were friends. We could probably get by with at least saying that. They were his, at least his friends. They may have been family. We're not sure. But these four men were moved with compassion. Their faith involved compassion for that man's need. They saw a man in need, and they had, uh, weren't going to exercise their faith in God. I believe these four men, because it says in verse number five, five, it says God saw their faith. We'll get to that in a minute. But I believe these four men already had had some kind of an experience with Jesus already. They have either been in a service with Jesus already, they have heard him speak already, or they have been around him already. They, maybe they've seen a miracle done already. Many people have. And they, by their experience, they were going to step out by faith and get this man to where Jesus was. They had compassion on this man to get him to Jesus. In order to bring somebody to Jesus, you have to know the way there. In order for you and I to bring somebody else to know who Jesus Christ really is, we have to know where we can find him. We have to know where he resides. We have to know how to get from where we are with that person across whatever's in the way to where Jesus is and come into the presence of Jesus so Jesus can deal with that person that we're bringing to him. And this is what these four men, by faith, they stepped out and they had compassion on this man, his condition, where he was. They were already believers, I believe, in who Jesus was. They believed Jesus could heal him. I believe they believed the words that Jesus said. But they had already had some kind of interaction with Jesus already. And it's not, a, you know, we, have, we live in a world that pushes compassion. Today. I don't want to stay too long here, but you need more than just compassion. Amen? You know, compassion without the truth is just, it's going to take somebody in the wrong direction. Compassion without conviction is going to be just some kind of liberal form of idolatry or something that never brings people back to the reality that they have to deal with the, the, the truth in their life that they're not right with God or not. We need more than just compassion. Picture somebody on the roadside and they're on the corner and they have a little sign that says, we'll, uh, you know, not, they don't say we'll work for food no more because, uh, you know, I guess they don't want to work. But anyway, they say homeless or they say anything helps or they say God bless or they say whatever's on there. And you, you pull up and you, 
You see that person, you see that person with a need, and hopefully it's a legitimate need. Maybe it's, maybe it's not, many of them are not, but some of them may be. And maybe they have a legitimate need, and God begins to speak to my heart with compassion. It's okay to have that compassion. We'll get to the rest of that. We'll come back to that guy in a little bit. But we need more than just compassion. But to, for us to live by faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, we need to have compassion on those around us. We need to have compassion on those that have a need. They had faith enough to move on their compassion, by the way. They, their, their faith involved compassion. Second of all, their faith compelled them to action. It compelled them to action. There's a lot of people who say, well, I, I feel so sorry for their situation. I feel so bad for them, and I have compassion on them and their situation, and I really uh, feel what they're going through. And they may even put a Facebook message on it or a Twitter message or you know, what are some other Instagram or some other form of social media. But real faith involves compassion. It not only involves compassion, it involves a compelling to action. I want you to ask you a question this morning. How do you see somebody's faith? If I were to say this morning, well, let's pick on somebody. Let's pick on Miss Daisy. Miss Daisy, you're just sitting there just, just glowing with faith. Has anybody ever told you that before? Okay, me neither. Just so, just so the record's clear here. You can't really see somebody's faith. But what you do see is their actions. And if for somebody, in order for somebody to see your faith, if for order for somebody to see my faith, they must see the way I live. They must see my actions. The actions of these men that broke through that roof that day, Jesus looked up and he saw, the Bible says, their faith. He didn't see their, whatever he, the Bible specifically says, he saw their faith. It involved action of them doing something. If we have a real faith, it will compel us to do something for somebody else around us. It will compel them for action, to action. Let me ask you a question this morning. I know we can go get off on what ifs and all kinds of stuff, but I want to ask you this. How would this man have gotten himself to Jesus had not the four cared enough to bring him to Jesus? You say, well, God may have circled back around and done, you know, and you may be right. You know, God, Jesus himself went to the, the pool of Bethesda and talked to that crippled man there that was not able to get down to the pool. You remember that story? So Jesus personally went to him. Maybe Jesus would have sent somebody else by. But normally God uses, the route God normally uses here on earth is to send the people that belong to him to somebody else so they can bring somebody else back to him. This is the way God works. This is the way God works in the 21st century. This is the way God works now in our lives. That God uses you and he uses me. And if we step out to live, by, live for God by faith, God moves on us with compassion. God move, compels us to action. And God wants us to go and tell somebody else, to share with somebody else, to lead somebody else to where God is. They were genuinely coming to see God do something in the life of this man that was laying on this cot helpless. This man was paralyzed. We don't know the condition, full condition he was in, whether it was from the waist down, chest down, neck down, eyebrows down. We don't know where he was paralyzed at or how much, but we do know this. He could not get there on his own. Faith that involves compassion must also compel to action. Let me go on quickly with the, with the third one here. Their faith required commitment. This is really where I want to spend most of our time today. Their faith required commitment. These four men, we don't know if it was across town or wherever, but these four men went to this place. They found their friend there that was paralyzed. Hey, we've heard where Jesus is at. 
you know, someone says, well, I seen him there this morning. So another guy says, well, I think we can get there. And they come up with this plan. You know, he said, I'm not, you know, we can't get Jesus to come by to you. But I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take you in this cot. He'll pick one corner. I'll pick one corner. And I'll, we'll all grab a corner. And we're going to take you to where Jesus is. We're going to take you over there. It'll be comfortable for you. You don't have to do nothing. You don't have to do anything. Just lay there. We're going to take you to where Jesus is, and we're going to watch Jesus move in your heart and your life. We know Jesus can heal you. We've seen him heal other people. We believe God can heal you. We've seen him heal other people. We know God can change your life because we've seen him change our lives. And they had a, their, faith, their faith required commitment to the cause of Christ. I want to ask you this morning, everybody in here this morning, did you come to church the very first time that anybody ever invited you? Did you? I don't think I did. I'm trying to remember back, but I don't think I did. You may have, but most people did not. It took somebody to be committed enough to ask you again. It took somebody committed enough for God to use his people where somebody else would ask you. And then somebody else will come around and ask you. And God is using people that are committed to the cause of Christ. And just because things seem hard does not mean that things are wrong. These people had to be committed to Christ and their walk with God and their endeavor to get this man's body through the crowd to who Jesus was. When they saw the crowd, when nobody would let them in, when the roof looked expensive, when it was hot and the roof was hard and tearing off the roof was hard and other people told them they were crazy, and they're going to have to pay for this. And they're going to get sued over this. And somebody may even threaten them. I'm going to beat your head in if you don't quit beating that guy's roof up. We don't know what went on. But we do know this. These guys were persistent. They were committed to get this person to Jesus. And they remained committed to get their friend to Jesus no matter what happened. Nobody stopped them. And they kept going. Commitment to Christ must be a part of who we are in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I tried to live for Christ this last year. And it's been the worst year I've ever had. That may be very true. You may have dedicated your life to Christ lately. You said, God, I'm going to live for you in 2021. And some of the worst things have happened in your life so far. When you commit your life to Christ, it does not mean everything's going to get easier. Usually it means things are going to get harder. Because see, now you belong to God. That This is the devil's world, and he wants you back. And I, you can give testimony. I could too. We can use the building as a testimony. To be honest with you, I thought it would go a lot faster than this. I thought it would be a lot easier than this. Brother Gary, I thought, you know, that people would just be running out, you know, just falling over themselves to come help. I, I thought, and we had some wonderful helpers. I'm not complaining at all. But it took a lot more than I thought it was going to take. It took a lot more commitment than I thought it was going to take. It took a lot more dedication than I thought it was going to take. My friend, welcome to the Christian life. Anything is easy is usually not worth having. There will always be resistance to, the, to being obedient and walking in obedience with Jesus Christ. When I went to the, well, I don't go to the beach very often. I don't have the beach body, as you can probably tell. But, and even if I did, it wouldn't be out there flashing around. But anyway, I go to the beach, and I, we took the kids to the beach last year. And one of the things, I don't really like the beach. I don't like the ocean. I don't like the smells. I don't like any of it. But anyway, I go there just because I'm forced to, and i, I got to drive. But anyway, I go there, and, and I remember going out in the ocean to about knee high. You know, in the water, they splash, it splashes in and out or whatever. We were actually in the bay, so we weren't, it wasn't, wasn't too bad of waves. But anyway, if you've ever been on the ocean, you stand in the wet sand, and the water's about to your knees, and, you know, you see the waves coming. And every now and then, you get a, a bigger wave. You know, it's not real big, but it's, it's like this high or something. It comes up by waist high and splashes into you. And what does it do? It tries to push you back, doesn't it? And when you're standing there in the sand, one of the amazing things I thought, heavy as I am, 
the sand will erode when the tide goes back out. The sand under my feet will literally just kind of peel away and, and, and disappear. And I begin to sink, and I'm about ankle deep after about four or five waves. Now, it might be because I'm heavy. I don't know. But, you know, I stand there, and I get sunk in. And then, you know, all this water comes by and swashes me this way, and then all the water comes back and swashes me this way. This is the way the world works. When you stand up for God or you try to live for God, the devil will try to make sure that culture pulls you this way or, or some, something else that's politically correct will try to pull you back this way. Have you ever heard that phrase, go with the flow? That's probably where it come from. But that, that has nothing to do with the Christian life at all because usually the Christian life, if you commit to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have resistance. That resistance will try to get you to go with the culture, not counterculture. Christianity is counterculture from where we are today. You politically correct may try to suck you back this way, but we, you and I must remain committed to the cause that Christ has called us to. These four men went out that day. We don't know a whole lot about them. We don't even know their names. In fact, Jesus never even recognized them as who they were. But we do know this: they were dedicated to get this man to where he needed to be, where Jesus was. He didn't, you know, they didn't get in, and start a fight, try to get people, you know, to Jesus or get Jesus, people out of the way so they could see Jesus. They didn't do something violent, but they were committed to the cause to get this man to Jesus no matter what it took. There will always be resistance. We, they say that you know, church is downstream from culture. You know, culture, whatever comes out of culture eventually ends up in the church to some degree. Some degree or another. Hopefully not much degree, but some degree or another. And if you've ever been to like a mountain stream and you see the stream going along, I'm not talking about the lazy days of summer, you just a big, you know, nothing moves like a mud puddle. I'm talking about a, a pretty swift stream. And you can walk, you know, I decide I want to go across it. And it's about, again, knee deep. And I go out in there and I step out in it. And the first thing it does is try to jerk me down that way. And as long as I keep my feet on the bottom, I, you know, and again, I'm heavy, so I don't, I don't flow too much. But uh, I have to hold on to a key at each side. And I can ease across here like this, and I can go on across the water. But if I pick my feet up very far, I'll go over here, and I'll go over here. And before long, I'm, on, I'm way downstream than I was to start with. That's the way culture does with us. This is what de the devil does with us in a Christian walk. He'll get you to move just a little bit on something. And he'll get you to just move just a little bit more on something. And I'll take another step, and I'll just get, may I just implore you this morning to help you and encourage you dedicate your life to Christ this year to say to God I'm going to remain faithful to you I'm going to be committed to you to do whatever I need to do in my Christian life to have a Christian walk with you the most important thing that you and I can do this year is to make a commitment this morning or a couple days ago New Year's commitment or whatever it is that I'm going to live for Jesus Christ this year no matter what happens in culture no matter what happens in society no matter what is politically correct no matter what laws they pass no matter what they make illegal and legal I'm going to live for Jesus Christ and what this book says I'm going to try my dead level best to get people to know who Jesus is around me. That takes immense dedication, friend. It's not something for the faint of heart. It's not something we should just blow off and think that, you know, I, I checked my box, I've been to church this, this January, I ought to be good for the whole year. It doesn't work that way. If you were to take this man that was laying here, these four men come to him, we don't know how long they carried him, how far they carried him. Maybe they carried him on a cart until they got close. We're not sure. But you could take this just for, for good... Uh, uh, not multiplication, uh, sub not subtraction, division. There you go. Big word I was looking for. Just for good equal division. Say this man weighed 160 pounds. He's laying here on this cot. And if I had to pick a 160-pound man, if I probably could, I don't know, it wouldn't be pretty. And he wouldn't be comfortable. 
and I couldn't carry him very far. But I could probably pick him up. It would be ugly. And I might hurt myself. But this man, 160 pounds, is laying here. Maybe he weighed less than that back then. Maybe he made more. I don't know. But you take four men, we all get a corner, and we go, I'm going to pick the feet, by the way. Somebody else can have the other end. I'm going to pick where the feet are. And I'm just kidding. But they would all pick a side, and they would pick it up, and they would start toting this guy. They would be carrying, if, if all the weight was equal, it would be 40 pounds apiece. Now, I can carry 40 pounds a whole lot easier than I can carry 160. I can go a lot farther with 40 pounds than I can 160. And, I, you know, maybe they had to go a little ways and we'll sit down and do a you know, rotation. You go to that side, I'll go to this side, and we switch hands or whatever. But the, nonetheless, they could carry this man. It was doable for them to carry this man from wherever he was to where Jesus was. My friend, people, God uses more than one person to bring people to Jesus. Like I said a while ago, most of the time people, when they come to church, they usually don't get saved the first time they come to church. They don't usually come to church the first time they're asked. They don't usually get things right the first time they come. Now, every now and then that happens, and that's great. <clears throat> My point is this morning that it takes more than one committed person to make a real difference in, in society. It takes more than that. God can use just one, but usually this is the way God works. That maybe you see somebody, you invite them to church, you talk to them about Jesus, and you don't, they kind of blow you off. It may be you coming back to them again. Or maybe somebody else come back to him again. But without commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, this will not happen. I don't know about you this morning, but what I want to do this year is I just want to carry my corner, amen? I can't carry the guy very far. I don't want to hurt myself. But I can carry a corner, amen? I can grab some, you know, the, the part of that, and I can yank it up here, and I can carry my corner. My friend, this morning, I'm going to challenge you along with me that, that we need to get where God is and get to where God's at and know how to get there and know how to get somebody else there and to grab our corner and to bring somebody to church this, this, this year. To not only bring somebody to church this year, but bring somebody to Christ this year. And God, not only that, but I want to walk with you each and every day this year. There was a missionary, the Missionary Society wrote David Livingston, Livingston, David Livingston back in the 1800s. And he was a missionary to Africa. He went over there to start churches in remote parts of Africa. And the Missionary Society wrote him a letter and said, we have found... Uh, have you found a good road where people where you are and, and how people can get to you a good road? If so, we want to know how to send other men to join you where you are. Well, that sounds good enough. David Livingston wrote back and said, if you, if you have men who will come only if there's a good road, he said, I don't want them. He said, I want men that will come if there's no road at all. I want them to come. My friend, when you get saved and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God does not promise you an easy road. God does not promise you an easy marriage. God does not promise you an easy work environment. God does not promise you easy child rearing. God didn't promise any of that. But what God did promise is that he would be there with you. And God will lead you and direct you and mold you and shape you in what you need to be and where you need to go. Let me give you the fourth thing quickly here. Their faith reflected their character, what they stood for, what they stood for. I want you to see, just in closing this morning, just a couple of comments about how Jesus healed this guy, and uh, we can get on with the rest of the service today, but as we get on with the rest of the service today, what they, this, this is what they did reflected what they stood for. You say, well, how do you see somebody's character, what they stand for, what they actually do? I don't care what they say they do. I'm so sick of seeing politicians promise everything under the sun. You know, uh, you know, I'm looking for them to come out in this next election and just uh, promise everybody a Ferrari 
or something if they vote for them. Or, you know, I'll promise you a new car or whatever. I'm sick of the promises. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. The guys get in the office and don't do anything. You know them. I know them. We need somebody that's going to be committed. And the way that we see our character is of what we, by what we do and how we live for God. They were willing to take the embarrassment, the cost of the damage, the ridicule by the onlookers. What mattered most to these four men is that their, their friend was introduced to who Jesus was. Now, I don't know if you're not a people person. I'm not really a people person either. But it would have been really hard for me to go to a house with surrounded, you know, full of 50, 60 people, surrounded by maybe 100 people to try to ease my way through the crowd. These people weren't necessarily nice either. If they were, they would have let him walk on through to, the, to where Jesus was. Kind of seems common sense to me, right? It didn't to them. They had to go up to the roof, and, and I started breaking the roof up, and not everybody was friendly, especially whoever's roof it was. And I had to be willing to face that embarrassment or face that ridicule or face whatever it is that it was. But the most important thing with them is that they introduce people to Jesus. They introduce their friend to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've had to get over a lot of shyness in the ministry. I've had to get over, not, I don't necessarily hurt people's feelings on purpose. I don't want to do that at all. And I don't want to, but I have to get used to being uncomfortable. Because the most important thing is not necessarily their comfort or my comfort. The most important thing is that I introduce somebody to who Jesus Christ is. You can see everything else is temporary. This man received help from some devoted friends, some determined friends, but he also received help from a divine friend. This man's greatest need, I want you to see this in closing this morning, and this is why we do what we do. This is why we live the Christian life. The man's greatest need this morning, if you look at this paralyzed man, if we were to take and bring somebody in here, if we could reenact this, this guy was laying here on the cot, and he can't move anything. Somebody's got to dress him in the morning. Somebody's got to feed him in the morning. Somebody's got to bathe him at night. Somebody's got to take him to the bathroom. Everybody would say, well, he has a lot of needs. Of course he does. The most important need that man had is the one that Jesus addressed first. Which one did Jesus address first? Forgive him of his sins. He looked at him and said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Verse number five. Jesus addressed this young man or old man or whatever age man was. His greatest need is the one that Jesus addressed first. Now, obviously, he had other needs. Let's go back to the guy on the corner panhandling. Um, homeless or whatever he had on his little sign. I can have compassion on the guy. I can feel, you know, sorry for the guy. I can want to help the guy. And I, I can actually do something and do that. But the most important need that man has is not for me to give him a $20 bill. The most important need that the person that's, that's you know, uh, let's pick something bizarre, uh, somebody in prostitution. And the most important thing is I not get her off the street. The most important thing of a person that is, is dying of cancer, the most important thing is, is me not giving him the next treatment. The most, and I'm, I'm using some bizarre examples, and I'm, you know, uh, exaggerating some things, but look at this. I'm, and not that the other needs shouldn't be met. They should. But the most important need is that they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. If we look at this from a value of eternity, all these other things are temporary. If the guy starves to death on the corner, if he knows who Jesus is, he's going to heaven. If the guy that was laying in front of Jesus that day and he was paralyzed and he never was able to wiggle his fingers again, he was never able to wiggle a toe again, when he give his life up, when he closed his eyes in death one day, he would see Jesus Christ face to face and he would live there for all eternity with a perfect body and everything would be grand. Most important need, my friend, 
is what they do with Jesus. Now, we should address these other needs, don't get me wrong. Now, I'm not like saying, I'm not saying that, you know, some guy falls in a pond somewhere, freezing pond, and he gets out and he's shivering on the side of the pond. He said, well, your most important need is to get right with Jesus. Sometimes we have to meet their physical need in order to get a hearing so they will hear their spiritual need. Not that we should neglect their physical need, but you and I must keep a concept that their most important need is what they do with Jesus. Not to try to give somebody gifts at Christmas time to soothe their conscience. Not to give the guy a $20 bill so my conscience will be clean. Where's that guy going with Jesus? How can I introduce this person to Jesus? The most important thing that I can do in life is to live with a perspective to get people to introduce them to who Jesus is. This man was paralyzed. Somebody had to take care of him. And Jesus did heal his other needs as well. But his most important need was to know Jesus as a Savior. This year, as you go through, maybe you pick a slogan every year, maybe you don't, you know. Um, you come up with all kinds of slogans for the new year. And I've been looking at church slogans. You know, we have a, uh, you know, a slogan or a saying or a logo or whatever you call that, you know. And, and I mean, just read you a couple. And I was looking through some of these. Uh, a church for the unchurched. That sounds pretty good. A vision for the world, a home for their family. That sounds pretty good. Built to serve, serving to build. I don't know if I like that one. I've been doing too much building around here. Come as a guest, leave as a friend. Connect people to God. Embracing Jesus, reaching others. These all sound like good slogans, don't they? Guiding your life in a misguided world. Oh, that's true. Leading the lost, leading the lost to the cross. That's pretty good. Making Christ known. That's pretty good. But my favorite one, and the one I, I try to repeat year after year, there's a guy in Tennessee, he had a slogan. Um, this isn't my favorite one, but he had a slogan, pretty catchy slogan. He says, where people with a past can have a future. And that was a pretty good slogan, isn't it? But, uh, you know, the one that, that I come back to all the time is to know him and to make him known. To know Jesus in my life. To know Christ and to make him known. That's the mission that God has given this church. That's the mission that God has given me. That's the mission, whether you know it or not, that God has given you, to know Jesus and to make him known. I want to ask you this morning, will you take your corner? I want to carry my corner this year. And I want to close in a word of prayer this morning. And if you want to come to the altar this morning, I'm going to go down here on the altar and ask God to bless our year. And I'm going to dedicate my life to God this year and tell God I'm going to carry my corner. I'm going to do my dead level best to be committed to him, to be dedicated to him, to bring somebody wherever they are to where they need to be with Jesus. Won't you come with me this morning as we close in prayer? Thank you for taking time to listen today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with your loved ones. Additionally, you can contact us by using the information provided in this episode's description. We hope that you'll visit us again soon. May God bless you. Thank you.